You are listening to the Twibbly Podcast, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. Comedy podcast looking back at This Week in History. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Podbean, or wherever you like to get your podcasts from. You can find us and or message us over on Facebook and Instagram using TWWWBLY. Welcome back to Twibbly, or this week was way better last year. My name is Bill with one L. With me, woo-hoo, he's pleased to meet you, and he hope you guess his name. Woo-hoo, it's Jeff McLarge-Huge. That's right, I was there when Caesar bled. <laughs> also, I just gave it away, that's his name. Oh, that's right. <laughs> That's right. Pleased to meet Hashtag you. Hashtag spoilers. Yep. Hashtag <laughs> spoilers. Pleased to meet you. Hope you... Wait a minute. <laughs> oh, hi. My name's Jeff. What's up? How are you? I'm all right. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I found myself uh, very recently embarking on a quest because I guess I don't have enough to do. <laughs> have you embarked on any, any quests before I describe the sort of what I've been on my way around looking for? This holy grail of things. I've been working on a mural for a little while. There is a blank wall at the bottom of my cellar stairs, and I would just like, you know, there's the artist voice. It's like, there's a blank wall. We cannot have a blank wall. So I decided to, you know, paint a gigantic mural of the Universal Studio Monsters. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, because I uh, thought for sure you would you would paint like a mural of a tunnel stretching off into the distance, <laughs> so that any of your friends who come over can like, oh my god, there's a big tunnel here. Whack. Or as we like to call it, the coyote trap, yeah. <laughs> the coyote trap, yeah. <laughs> uh, no, no, uh, monsters, horror oh, movies. Oh, super you know. cool. Yep. Very cool. Yeah, that's that's definitely within your idiom. Yeah, that's awesome. Why? What do you got? Awesome. What are you doing? Okay, since I created an office in my basement that I spend all friggin' day in for work, it's also become my de facto sort of writing space for non-work writing. And one of the things that I, that I wanted to do was add a better music player than I have down there, which is right now is none. Okay. So I started hunting around for old stereo equipment. So an old receiver, old speakers, old turntable, old cassette player, old CD player, or some combination of those things. Ideally, it would be like the one that I had when I was a kid in my room that I bought at Sears, which is like a cassette player and a turntable and a radio all sort of Frankenstein together into one unit. Yeah, you're going to have a hard time getting those out of Sears now, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Have you tried Radio Shack? Damn, they're gone. They're gone too. It's, it sounds like a conspiracy. What I have found myself doing is like rather than going to just eBay and finding one that works and buying it and having it shipped to me or something, is is trying to go find components or see if I can spot one in one of the local like thrift places or Goodwill or whatever. And my son and sometimes my daughter have been hanging around with me while we go out and look for vintage stereo equipment. So I, I happen to find the first piece of the Holy Grail that's going to determine how the rest of this plays out. Okay. When I bumped into a, 19, a vintage 1971 BSR 710 turntable at Goodwill for like $6. Oh, wow. This thing weighs 100 pounds. It's friggin' heavy as all get out. It's all, I think it's made out of a solid block of heavy. <laughs> it's not one of those and, console stereos like my mom used. My mom and my grandmother, they both had them. It was, it was like furniture. 
Right. And no, I would give my eye teeth for one of those. That was originally what I started hunting around for, but I can't find one. And I don't have the vehicle to get it to my house, even if I did find one. Sure. But but so I'm, I've been looking for components to just stack some components up on a table and be done with it. And I found this this turntable. At, I paid $6 for it. $6 for a turntable that's almost as old as me. Does the turntable work? Not yet. <laughs> <laughs> But I found like dozens upon dozens of YouTube videos of people who are going back and and restoring this particular type of turntable. I didn't realize that BSR was the largest turntable manufacturer in the world for like 30 years. Oh, wow. And almost every turntable that you bought was either branded as BSR or was a BSR branded by somebody else. Almost like VHS with the uh, VCRs kind of a thing. Well, kind of. VHS is more of a format, but it would be like if all the VCRs were Samsung's. Okay. But they were some were called Sears and some were called JCPenney and some were called Toshiba and some were called Magnavox, but they were all the same components on the inside were all made by Samsung. Yeah, it's more all right, so more like the Atari and the Sears version of the Atari. Okay. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And it's been it's become a super fun quest to be on. That I'm not looking forward to it ending when I find the other pieces that I need, but it's been a lot of fun to go out and like root around and see what's out there. And then you're finally going to get it all working and you're going to put a record on it and you're going to be like, oh yeah, that's right. Records sound like open ass. Yes, this sucks. <laughs> one, of the, one of the things that I want to do is, is... You just ultimately bring <laughs> your Bluetooth speaker down there and hook it up to your phone like a normal person. I may end up breaking with tradition and buying a modern receiver that has an auxiliary input so I can plug my iPod into it when I want to listen to something that I don't have on vinyl already. Right. But, you know, this would be something that I would have so I could literally drop a record and... Or a stack of records and listen to one side each. Because this is kind of turntable. It's an automatic turntable that will let you do that. That's, that's such a like an old school way of like dating. Hey, you want to come over and listen to some records? Right? It's great. I love it. Want to listen to some records and just stare at each other? Just grin at, <laughs> just grin at each other from across the room? Right. We can share the lyric sheet, but the print's pretty small. <laughs> Here, you look at the cover and I'll look at the lyric sheet because I like this song and then we'll trade. I can't read lyric sheets anymore. Oh, no. <laughs> I I need my special NASA designed glasses to see the text. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Every time I go see my doctor, it's like, oh, how are you feeling? I go, well, I can't see anything anymore. But other than that, I'm great. <laughs> can you read the bottom line on the sign on the door? Oh no, no way. Door? <laughs> Point me in the right direction. I'll let you know. Right, right, exactly. Yes. Uh, let's get the show a rolling. Before we get said show said rolling, I have my. Awesome and always well-received trivia question for you. I'm kind of double-dipping on this one. A couple of weeks ago, I asked you who was the youngest member to join the Saturday Night Live cast. Right. I'm flipping the record over, and then we're going the other direction. Who was the oldest member to join the Saturday Night Live cast? Oldest member to join the Saturday Night Live cast. I have a good idea who this might be, and I'm going to hold on to it till the end of the show. You hold on to that. You put put that right in your pocket. All right, so let's get on to the show. This is the week All beginning, right. May the 24th, and you may start this week. <laughs> May the 24th. In an example of uh, inventors overestimating the heavy weight of the inventions that they have created, uh-huh. Samuel Morse, or Samuel F.B. Morse, the inventor of Morse code, taps out the world's first telegraph message. And what he types out is, what hath God wrought? <laughs> All right. I mean, telegraphs led to telephones. Telephones led to where we are today, good or bad or whatever. And it was the first like long distance communication that we had that used electricity. All groundbreaking. But I mean, what, what hath God wrought is, is pretty over the top, even for 1844. 
Yeah, listen, ghost of Samuel Morris. I'm using my Ouija board, and I'm letting you know that when you were going beep, 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 if you foresaw the dominoes tipping over that led to the QAnon conspiracy theories, you're lying. You're so full of shit. Right? And, and, and I'm surprised that, you know, what hath God right when the next message, I'm sure it was like, beep, 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 which is Morse code for send nudes. <laughs> uh, back in the old days when when texting was texting. That's that's hilarious. Yeah, my uh, my uh, knowledge of Morse code starts and ends with uh, Roger Waters' Radio Chaos. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay, that's a big feature of that record too. I'd forgotten. Yep. The the entire album cover is in Morse code, right. and then you hear like dee, 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 throughout right. the whole thing. It yep. probably says send nudes now that I think about it. <laughs> or it says don't buy the division bell. Yes. <laughs> it says David Gilmore's a, a wanker. Uh, actually, I think one of the things it says on there is probably Robert Oppenheimer, right? His quote when he detonated the first atom bomb was, I have become death. <laughs> no, it says something. Sense. It says something like along the lines of as long as war is considered evil, it will be popular. It's something uh, like that. Yeah, it's one of the one of the things that are encoded into the album that only a, like a big Pink Floyd fan would actually own. Yes, that was my first real introduction to Roger Waters as a solo artist. Was oh, Radio awesome. Chaos? That was so, the first CD I ever bought. Was it really? Yeah. I had it on cassette, and it was the that was the first Roger Waters album I ever bought. And then later, I bought the pros and cons of Hitchhiking, and then all of his other stuff. And I uh, actually learned how to play the Titus Turning on the ukulele. Oh, nice! Yeah, it sort of uh, magnifies the majesty of that song when you play it, <laughs> play it on the ukulele. You know, that's like the time that I I used to play also Sprack Zarathustra on the kazoo. <laughs> 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 it just captures the majesty of the song so well. Yeah. That that one's made for like a, a chorus of kazoos. A, chorus think of about, yeah. a slide whistle. <laughs> <laughs> so moving on to the 25th. Oh, May 25th. Uh, yeah. May yeah, May 25th, 1977. A day that will live in infamy. What uh, hath hell world... rot? Oh, sorry. That's not it. A... <laughs> the world changed Forever. On uh, May 25th, 1977, that is when the movie Star Wars first opened in theaters. Wow. Yep. May 25th, 19 1977, the one that we now know as A New Hope. George Lucas is what? Was that his second or third movie, right? His first one was THX 1138, and I don't remember if he did American Graffiti before he did Star Wars. It was before, because yeah. um, uh, that's, that's how Harrison Ford got to be in Star Wars. Because he had worked on American Graffiti and George Lucas liked him, yeah. I don't know about more American. That's the first movie I ever saw in the cinema without my parents. Was more American Graffiti. I had a choice between that and the kids are all right, and I picked. <laughs> you chose more American poorly. Goddamn Graffiti. Yes, I chose poorly. Ugh. So anyway, back to Star Wars. Yes, back to Star Wars. That movie I saw. Did you see it in the theater? I, did, I saw run? it twice in the same day. Wow. Yeah, my dad was so enamored with it. He went out halfway through the movie and bought tickets to the next showing. That's hilarious. Yep. I, I, I saw it. It changed my life. I saw it again. It changed me back. Right, exactly. Um, I left yeah. exactly the same way I came in. <laughs> I saw it in the theater first run, 
But much, much later, my memory tells me that that movie was in theaters for a very, very long time. Like, I think it played at our local mall for just about a year. Yep. Which is unheard of. Yeah, I saw it a month or so after it premiered because it was there for a really long time. Oh, no. Yeah, we didn't see it. I th- I think it was out for about, I'll, I don't, like I said, my, my memory is fuzzy, but I think it was out for like nine months yeah. by the time I got to see it. Yep. But it was fully formed, a fully formed baby movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was such like a huge, there would never any, been anything like that before. I mean, yeah, right. the Jaws, Jaws movie was popular and stuff right. like that. And Jaws 2, where I remember there being lines of that as well. Right. But nothing compared to Star Wars. People yeah, no would wait. Ex- and like the weird thing is no one expected Star Wars to, to make any money. It was a low budget film made by a director that nobody really knew that well. It was right. science fiction, which has was on a was in a waning cycle in popular culture. Right. And it was meant to originally he and like Lucas wanted to shoot a Flash Gordon movie and he couldn't secure the rights to it ended up making his own sort of Flash Gordon movie yeah. out of it. He made Star Wars. and Star Wars is the Nosferatu of science fiction. It definitely, it definitely is the Nosferatu of science fiction. And it was just hugely influential because it didn't treat the audience like little kids. It wasn't about like space monsters and scientists trying to solve a problem. It was an adventure story that could have taken place anywhere but happened to take place in space. And the world around the characters was so fully realized that Everybody was able to willingly suspend their disbelief, like, before the lights were all the way down. Yeah, and it was definitely definitely a spectacle. And oddly enough, exactly exactly six years later, on May 25th, 1983, the third uh, installment of the Star Wars trilogy, Return of the Jedi, opened. Yep. Bigger and longer and more bombastic in every way than the original now with more Death Star. With more more Death Star. And I remember I remember like Lucas saying, like, well, people really like the spaceship, so we've got scenes with two thousand five hundred and ninety-six million spaceships on them. And I was like, All right. Yeah. Two thousand nine hundred and ninety-six million spaceships is a lot of spaceships, and I like spaceships. So yeah. I, I remember liking the Return of the Jedi. I, I liked it a lot more when I saw it in re-release. Uh-huh. And especially like the Luke Skywalker arc, all the scenes with him and the the Emperor Palpatine and and Vader on the new Death Star are some some of my favorites in the entire series, all yeah. nine movies. You know, I think we mentioned this a couple of weeks ago that Palpatine uh, was it Shiv? I think his name is yep. or Shiv, my favorite character in the Star Wars universe, probably because he's like the devil character. And then you know, of course, you know, I love my horror movies, so I'm going to be drawn to that. Mm-hmm. Do you remember when they brought them all back in the '90s? Yeah, you know, those are the re-releases that I remember where where Return of the Jedi really resonated with me was oh, yeah. was that second time in the cinema seeing it. Yeah. So we had gone to see them at like the la- the last showing opening night, you know, each one. They released them like February, March, and April, I think it was. Yep. And we would go to opening night but the last showing, you know. Mm-hmm. And I just remember <laughs> such a dick. I was you know, I was in my my wild 20s, I guess. Whenever Palpatine goes, oh, I'm afraid the shield generator will be quite operational when your friends arrive. I just, like, I was, it was loud enough for everybody here. I just went, you fucking bastard! <laughs> a, a raucous, ha! <laughs> uh, I'm sure. Yep. Oh. I, I think the easy one to say is everybody seems to like Empire Strikes Back as the, their favorite out of those three. I don't know. I'll be controversial. I'll go with Jedi. I think Jedi is my favorite. 
I'll be I'll be less controversial and of them all I think the, the very first one is the one that drew me in it made me love the soundtrack it's the first time I remembered the music that was part of the movie and made the movie work for me sure and and influenced how I viewed science fiction and how I viewed reading and writing and everything else since then so it's super duper influential for me plus that cantina song is a real toe tapper <laughs> yes all right so what do we have for May the 26th May the 26th be with you May the 26th be with you. Uh, 1994, Michael Jackson marries Lisa Marie Presley. So the king of pop marries the daughter of the king. So that's two yeah. kings and a princess <laughs> all smooshed together. And had a short-lived, very awkward, paparazzi-filled, head-scratchingly strange marriage that was all over TV. And you could run this the gamut of from folks who were like, this is an amazing marriage to what is this? This can't be real, and and everything in between. Remember, I forget which award show it was, but like they came out like right after they got married yep. to present or whatever it was, and then they like kissed in front of yep. the audience, and the audience went completely nuts, like oh yeah, yeah, because yeah. like I mean Michael Jackson's you know sexuality had always been up for debate let's just right. you know word it that way you know the what? guy ne- the guy never really came out as you know anything and you don't have to you know right, that's right. really not anybody's business but what a different world we're living in now because everybody was cheering like yeah he's not gay good for well, him it's, it's like know? that's right that's right around like up in the 70s and early 80s he dated like Brooke Shields and Tatum yeah. O'Neal and right, right, stuff right. And was like known around for dating people who were like his contemporaries. I don't know how else to describe it, right? Right, right. Similar age, similar level of fame, etc. And then in 94, that's when the first of the accusations kind of started. It was like, that Michael Jackson? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it was, it just became duper bizarre. Right. Like they did like a whole like Barbara Walters interview that was like all over the place. Well, people like just assumed he was gay because, you know, he had a kind of an effeminate voice. And it's like, right. yeah, you ever hear Prince talk? You didn't right. think he was gay, did you? And, and then there, like, again, it was this all this weird stuff like hanging around with Macaulay Culkin. And, yeah. and, all and, and Emmanuel Lewis was another one that was. Emmanuel uh, Lewis, yeah. right. All this sort of weirdness. And, and it definitely colored the, the years of his career after that. Right. It never broke him out. I never like destroyed them or anything, but it definitely colored them. And Lisa Marie Presley, for all the weirdness of the marriage, still maintains that they were, you know, good for each other. And it just wouldn't work because it, the the scrutiny was so so strong they could never be intimate. It was like good that, luck. That woman either needs to get a job as or needs to see a relationship counselor yeah. because. Think about this. She's the daughter of arguably the most famous man that uh, famous American that ever lived, right? She marries Michael Jackson, number two second famous American that ever lived. And then after that, she got married to Nicolas Cage, right? Yeah. Who's cuckoo bananas. <laughs> the worst yeah. part about it is he married her because he was obsessed with her father. Yeah. Like he's a huge Elvis fan, so we started dating the, the like that poor girl, that poor yeah, girl, whoever she's married to now must have like the patience of a Jedi. <laughs> or either that, or, or it's like you know, like it's literally a nobody who has to keep reminding himself that it's Elvis's daughter that he's married to. Like, oh my god, that's right. Right. It's, can't go to her father-in-law's house. It's like, oh, <laughs> what a pain in the neck that is, right? Well, we'll never see the in-laws. You know, <laughs> right. So, what's Priscilla really like? All right, let's get on to the 27th. 
So, on May the 27th, 1977, oi! The seminal punk rock band, the Sex Pistols, released their single, God Save the Queen, which is oh, yeah. quickly banned off the radio by the BBC. <laughs> yes, and they released it during the year of the, the what, the Queen's Jubilee, right? Yes. 1977. Yeah. It's definitely... A, a lot of uh, popular culture is commemorating the the Queen's the Queen's Jubilee, the hundred years, and like, yeah, that song, as good as it is, yeah, comes it, out and you know, causes I mean, all kinds yeah, of strife. Yeah, it's a punk rock anthem. It's a Lots punk rock, uh, you know, I, iconic uh, song. Yep. I remember seeing Anthrax live, and they closed with it. You know, what, what was great was during the Jubilee, you know, uh, the the Queen's boat is you know going down the Thames River, and she's over there, you know, waving at the crowd, and in a move. With balls bigger than I'll ever possess in my life, the Sex Pistols got a boat, got all their equipment on the boat, and basically chased the Queen's boat down the Thames River, playing "God Save playing the Queen" God live. Save the Queen live. Yeah. <laughs> Malcolm McLaren, I think, made that happen. Oh, I'm sure. And that yeah. was like they got. I think they got their record contract right after that, and then they lost their record contract at the same day. Oh yeah, the, the uh, EMI. Yeah, the fa- the famous EMI. EMI uh, yeah. yeah, they signed them and then the fired them. With it was it wasn't the same day, but it, it wasn't long. It was yeah, soon. yeah, very soon after that. And and they had to, they had to buy them out too. Like the contract was like for you know uh, fifty thousand pounds or whatever it was at the time. Yep. And they were like, yeah, you we're not you're not recording with us. Like, well, you still owe us the money. You know, there's there's two documentaries about the Sex Pistols. Both made by the same guy. One of them is really good. It's called The Filth and the Fury. Yep, seen it. Yeah, liked it a lot. Yeah, that one's told from the Sex Pistols' point of view. And it's really interesting, too, because, like, all their faces are, like, kind of hidden in shadows. Because they're telling the story of the Sex Pistols. You don't want to really see what they're like now, you know? Right. So they kind of obscure all their faces. And then the other movie, have you ever seen The Great Rock and Roll Swindle? I have, yep. Uh, about the disastrous tour in the United States where they disintegrated on their way yeah. around the it's U.S. A, it's the same story as The Filth and the Fury, but that one's told from Malcolm McLaren's point of view. Right. The Great Rock and Roll Swindle has an amazing soundtrack. I, I love that soundtrack. There's some great songs on there. I, I, I If I was going to watch either one of those two, I would definitely go with Filth and the Fury. I, think I find it way more attention-grabbing. Okay. Yep. Well, fair enough. Yep. Although uh, uh, that's going to be one of the my next songs to learn on my ukulele is um, uh, "Friggin' in the Riggin." Friggin' in the Riggin. Yeah, I'll, I'll make a point to learn EMI on the slide whistle <laughs> so we can do a duet. All right. Uh, actually, my friend, you know, back when I used to hang out, I never went to college, but I hung out there a lot. And uh, right. my friend was like, "Hey, you like the Sex Pistols, don't you?" I'm like, "Yeah, I like them." And they're like, "Yeah, they just came up in my literature class." I was like, "How did they come up in their literature class?" <laughs> they said that "Frigging in the Riggin" is uh, regarded as the most vulgar song ever recorded. <laughs> and I was like, "Well, they probably haven't heard the Salamonizer by Guar." I was just gonna say, like, hey, really? There's like way worse out there. Like half of the Meat Men's catalog, and you know, let me just put on two live crew for you. There you go. Your literature class will probably burst into flames. Uh, same girl also uh, brought up that the Dead Kennedys showed up in the same class because their song "Killed the Poor" was an allegory of Jonathan Swift's modest proposal. Yes. Uh, you can make that argument. Well, I like that song. I'm not going to make the argument. That was part of her class. 
I'm not making the leap, Jeff. It was a professor. Right, right. No, un- un- understandable. Yes, and uh, as somebody who was a lit major at one time and has a degree in it, that's my manual automatically goes to like, how could I make that argument? Is that argument valid? <laughs> how would I structure that argument if I was making it? So okay, so yes, uh, let's so let's get a- May May twenty eighth. Speaking of songs, the history of Jewish comedy and popular culture intersects in a bunch of places, like Mel Brooks writing for TV, coming out of that Borscht Belt tradition, etc. And in the 60s, there's this renaissance of comedians who release novelty songs that are genre-defying. Okay. The one for May 28th is, was released in 1966. It's called The Ballad of Irving oh, by, uh, by a guy named Frank Gallup. Yeah. And it, 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 went to 19, it, went to, it went to 1934. It went to number 34 on the Billboard charts. Wow. And it's a really funny song with a lot of funny sort of Borscht Belt humor in it. It's one that comes around on like every Dr. Demento compendium that comes out. Right, yeah. And it's that that weird kind of song that's it's it's funny, it's a little bit offensive but not in a way that's negative. It's like playing around with stereotypes and it's yeah. and it's really silly and it gets passed generation to generation to generation because it has this like comedic longevity. Yeah, I I remember I had it on a Ktel Dumb Diddies collection of of uh songs and it's a lot of Jewish humor in there but it's 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 one of those things that if a Jewish person makes the joke, then it's perfectly acceptable. I assume our friend Frank Gallup is is actually Jewish because if he went up there and told all these kind of jokes, he would just be like killed. But like everybody in the crowd <laughs> is laughing at this song like it is the funniest thing they have ever heard in their life. And I used to love the song when I was a kid. I thought it was really funny, even though about 60% of the jokes – I didn't get. Yeah, you know, it's a story of a of a Jewish cowboy. One of the lyrics was, "He always followed his mother's wishes. Even on the range, he kept two sets of dishes." It's like, right. yeah. Well, I was a little Catholic boy, you know, Catholic schoolboy. I don't understand the. the yeah, I didn't. Yeah, I didn't get some of the. Yeah, exactly. But now, I mean, now I'm like, okay, oh, that's kind of clever. But the people in the audience, like, ah. <laughs> it's it's fun. like that song was a parody of a of a really popular song by Lauren Green called Ringo. So it uses the same meter and beat structure and oh, everything. Really? And oh. so it, yeah, it turns out it's a it's a it's definitely a, a, I don't know if you've ever heard Ringo, but it's a, it's very similar in structure and story and whatever. And that song went to number two. So the parody of it doesn't surprise me that it followed it up the charts a bit. Sure. Frank Gallup had a long career in TV and radio before he. He took this took off as a singer and was always involved in announcing and and especially in stuff that was comedy oriented. So it doesn't surprise me at all that 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 would be his song. Right, and the mid sixties, the mid sixties were kind of like the golden age of novelty music, anyway. Mm-hmm. Yep. Really. All right, so let's jump ahead to the 29th. May the 29th, eighteen eighty six. American chemist John Pepperton begins to advertise Coca-Cola. Now, where oh, where I'm grabbing this from is like a, it's almost like a British source. So when it says chemist, yes. it's a pharmacist, is what it was. Yes, it was something he created and sold out of this like right. the, the yeah. And, soda and pharmacies back then aren't like you know CVS pharmacy now. It's like, you know, they they filled prescriptions and, and stuff like that, too. But they also had, like, a soda fountain and malted milkshakes and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, you'd go there and get coffee and stuff. And there was a, an area where people could be social. Sometimes that might be the only place in town yep. where everybody There was gathered, actually you know? one yep. down the street from my house that still had the soda jerk things. I don't know if they worked. 
but it was called Senecals, and I remember my father bringing me down there when I was like, you know, I could barely walk, you know, but I remember going down there, and we used to get comic books and stuff, yeah. We used to have one at the at, up at the corner of Bliss Corner on, on off yeah. of Dartmouth Street, where I grew up, called Goobas Pharmacy, and they had a soda fountain right in front, and that's where I used to go. My dad used to take me there for Raspberry Lime Rickies when I was a kid. Lime Rickies? Yeah. I still hate raspberries, but I like <laughs> Lime Rickies, and... uh and they also used to make like vanilla Coke or Dr. Pepper, like from syrups there at the counter. It was all stainless steel. It was beautiful. Right. Yeah. And then uh, Coca-Cola, you know, famously had cocaine in it at first yeah. for, for medicinal purposes. Right. And also, it, it, you know, that's a pretty good business model, not unlike cigarettes. Put a very addictive product inside your product and right. you will get more customers. Re- more. will re- come back for more. Yeah, repeat customers. Yeah. <laughs> This is what you want. First glass, five cents. All other glasses negotiable. Uh, We use the term on this show, golden age, an awful lot. I don't want to wear that out, the golden age of golden aging. We said it a lot in October. October was the golden age of the golden age. It was the golden age of golden ages. Um, But this is like when period in American history where pharmacies become really important and really popular. And because of advertising and ultimately what becomes canneries and distrib- distribution and bottling and other stuff, these things can spread. So Coca-Cola doesn't just stay in Pemberton's pharmacy. He's able to start to sell Coca-Cola outside as a franchise, the formula to other pharmacies that sell it as Pemberton's Coca-Cola. And then ultimately it becomes the the beverage that we sort of know today, sans the Coca part right. of the cola. There was a guy that lived backyard to me who loved Coca-Cola. However, he didn't like fizzy soda. So he actually used to go down to the Coca-Cola bottling place, which was in Providence, you know, so it's a, you know, it's a pretty good distance. Right. He used to, used to buy like cartons of the Coca-Cola syrup syrup and just mix them with regular like tap water. So we would have like flat Coke. Sounds great. It sounds (laughs) awful, doesn't it? Yes, it does. But, yeah, that's what he liked. He didn't like he didn't like soda, but he liked the yeah. taste of Coca Cola. Yeah. And do you do you remember there used to be like a couple of different soda companies right in New Bedford when we were kids? There was the Manhattan Soda Company. Yep, and Virginia that was Dare off Rockdale yep. and Virginia Dare. Yeah. Yep. I used to love Virginia Dare soda. Yeah. No, I was actually just thinking about them the other day because I remember as a kid liking the flavor of sarsaparilla, mm-hmm. and I couldn't tell you what the hell it tastes like to this day. I have no idea. Yeah, it's it's like kind of like root beer, kind of like cola, kind of like birch beer, all kind of mixed together. Really? I'm going to – that's going to be my white whale. That's going to be my 100-pound record player. You're, that's, gonna, your, that's your 100-pound record player? That's my 100-pound record player. I'm going to look for sarsaparilla soda somehow. All right. We'll have to follow that up on one of the episodes of the show and see how you do. All right. And let's wrap up the week with the 30th. 30th, 2014. Multi-talented uh, writer, producer, director, voice actor Seth MacFarlane's first uh, live-action film, A Million Ways to Die in the West, is released to theaters. I like that movie. I thought that movie was hilarious. It was nice to see a, a western again. Yeah. I mean, it's a it's an it's an art form or a, I guess a genre style that is totally not in the in the popular zeitgeist anymore. But he was able to pull it off and get a film released, and it, for that, that was great. It also got to showcase his ability to act not behind the scenes as a voice actor, as an actual character character. Right. And parlayed that into into what I thought was a fantastic TV show called The Orville. Yeah. 
I'm really surprised with Seth MacFarlane that we don't see more of him, that he's more of a voice actor and a creator, that you don't see more of him. Because one, he's got, I mean, obviously, because he does all the voices and all that, he's got amazing comedic timing. And the guy has obviously made some sort of deal with the devil because he looks exactly the same as he did 20 years ago. 30 years ago, yeah. Yes. Like I said, as a fan of the Orville, knowing that that McFarlane was a super giant Star Wars nerd, I think he wrote and directed every episode of the first two seasons of that show. Oh, wow. Like, and started it. Yeah, he was like right in there. So uh, the guy gets a lot of props from me for his skill uh, at keeping that kind of science fiction alive. Do you remember he did like a live action variety show? I'm going to say right around season four or five of Family Guy, there was like a... It was like it was on stage. It was a live action variety show with like comedy bits and songs and stuff like that. I have no recollection of this the thing of which you speak at all. Right. Cause, None. Because it put it this way, if you have it on DVD, you're not allowed to bring it onto an airplane. It did not do well at all. <laughs> it was really funny though. It just people didn't want to see Seth MacFarlane. They wanted Family Guy, you know? Yeah. And um, the girl that does the voice for Lois, she was on the show. Yeah. And um, oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, Seth MacFarlane, I think there's something, there's like a little bit of something there for everybody, you know? Right. Myself personally, I think I've said that more than one occasion, I'm a huge American Dad fan. Even though Seth MacFarlane doesn't really have much to do with it other than voice acting anymore. Right. He's part of the creation, but he kind of turned the reins over to other people. Right. But he still does the voice for. Uh, Stan and Roger. Ah. All right, so let's get on to the celebrity birthdays. Oh, wow. There we go. May 24th, 1974. Now, uh, we just mentioned Alex Borstein, not by name. You know, Lois. She does the voice for Lois. Uh, but she got her start on uh, Mad TV. Yep. And one of her co-stars is celebrating his birthday today, Will Salso from Mad hey, TV. Hey, Will yeah. Salso. Yep. Nice. Now, I used to love his Kenny Rogers when he used to do Kenny Rogers jackass on Mad TV. Those were <laughs> my favorite sketches of all time, I think. Yep. Super funny. Did you see the Three Stooges movie that he was in? I did. I'm the rare person that really, really enjoyed that movie. You know something? Um, the people that say they don't like that movie haven't watched it. I'm convinced. Because I show that movie to people you know, yeah. fairly often, and they're all like, oh, I don't want to see that. You can't touch the Stooges. I was like, no, you got you to gotta see this. They remain faithful to the spirit of the Three Stooges. Yes. And yep. Will Salso played Curly, and Will Salso yep. did an excellent job as Curly. The only problem yep. was the other two people were so awesome as Mo and Larry that it kind of overshadowed how good Will Salso was. I thought he was great. I, I love the scene of that where they – where uh, was it? Sofia Vergara offers them the money that they need to save the none or the, the the plot is super convoluted. Yeah, and and they're like, okay, and they immediately just push the guy in front of the bus. Like, like <laughs> one second after agreeing to do it, like they're gonna kill him right there. It was so funny. I saw that in the movies, and I didn't expect it to be funny at all. I went sort of out of not out of protest, but out of morbid curiosity. Yeah, and I think it was me and Ian and Meg were the only people in the cinema, and I was in. It was peals of laughter for, for 90 minutes. I could not stop laughing at how stupid that movie was. And it was great. Yep. It was the kind of great, stupid laugh that uh, 
that uh, it was meant to in, to uh, entail. And right, a, a big part of that was Will Sasso as Curly. He was also great in um, in Drop Dead Gorgeous, even though he had a little teenie tiny part. Uh, if you look at his IMDb page, there's oh, yeah. like seven million yeah, things that he's it's, in. It's so a, it's a huge. Can't yeah. go wrong with Will Sasso. Yeah, and if you have a ch- have a chance to see movie forty three. It's short. It's a lot of it's, it's it's almost like an anthology kind of a movie. That movie is freaking hilarious. All right, so let's go on to the next day, the twenty fifth. Who do you got? Born in uh, May twenty fifth, nineteen forty four, Frank Oz, who you may not recognize the name of, but he's an American Muppeteer, uh, which means he's one of the original guys that was working all of the Muppet characters from the beginning of the Muppet Show on. Yep. My God, have you ever heard Frank Oz talk like without puppets on its hands? I can't say that. I, I think he talked in Spies Like Us. Yeah, he sounds exactly like Bert. Yeah. He's in um, he's an American Werewolf in London. He's like the doctor. And he's like, right. he's like Mr. Kelso, please. Mr. Kelso, please. I appreciate it. <laughs> Mr. Kelso. Yeah, he sounds yeah, exactly yeah, like yeah. Bert when he talks. The scary, the scary thing about him is he, you know, he was he got accused of uh, of sexually harassment because he was doing the pigeon. Oh come on! <laughs> no, like b- being funny, like yep. but like if you listen to Miss Piggy and 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 Grover and Yoda, yep. who he also did the voice of, you can hear his voice in all of those all of those characters if you know yep. what he sounds Fo- like. Fo- and Fozzie Bear too, yeah. I remember when my brother and I went to see Empire Strikes Back and Yoda talked for the first time. We both looked at each other and went, Super Grover! <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what I looked at. It was Grover. Um, uh, Grover doesn't like R2-D2. Yeah, that's that, my thoughts exactly. Yep. Uh, and Frank Oz was also in the Blues Brothers. Yes. Yep, he, was in the op- he was the tax collector, right? No, the tax collector was Steven Spielberg. Oh, jeez. Uh, no, Frank Oz was the guy in the prison that gives... Uh, stuff back, yeah, right? Yeah. One yeah. soiled. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I remember. All right, so let's get on to the 26th. May the 26th, 1913. A man who, oh boy, this is the Star Wars episode today because this guy was Grand Moff Tarkin in A New Hope and also posthumously in Rogue One, Peter Cushing. Uh, yep. Dantooine is too remote for an effective rebel base. <laughs> <laughs> we'll test our starship on Alderaan. Yep. Yep. My favorite of uh, definitely of the foils of Dracula in the Hammer films, yep. and yep, that's and uh, was the first cinematic Doctor Who. Oh, was he? Yeah, he was in uh, like I don't know if it was called like War of the Daleks or something, but there was a feature film that was made in the I want to say it was late sixties, early early nineteen seventies, and he was the main. He was the Doctor for that film. Yeah, he was. Um... Yeah, he's in a lot of the Hammer films. He played both Dr. Frankenstein and Dracula. Um, he kind of switched places with another actor who we'll be talking about in three minutes, I'd say. Two or three minutes. Um, I don't remember him ever playing Dracula, but I always remember him playing Dr. Frankenstein. Yeah. And he played Van Helsing in a ton of movies as well. Right. Yeah, but he plays both. Yeah, they, they kind of switched off. They played both. Oh, maybe it was Van Helsing. I have only, I, You know what? I have a Hammer, uh, Hammer movies box set, and I haven't really watched a lot of them. I just watched... Um, I think it was The Curse of Frankenstein I watched like a couple of weeks ago. The way I described it to my friend, I go, it's like watching a B movie with excellent actors. Yeah, all of (laughs) Hammer's movies are like that, yes. And you can, after a while, you can spot like the same forest set, the same forest that they use for like 100% of their movies. It's like, oh, look, there's going to be a house right over there. And there it is, you know. Uh And whether you're watching... uh, you know, Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell, which is like 1974 with Peter Cushing, or or you're watching Curse of Frankenstein from like 1963, yep. also with Peter Cushing. All the sets are the same. 
Uh, one thing about Peter Cushing before we move on, on the set of A New Hope, the boots that he had to wear, he absolutely hated them. So most of the scenes, he's walking around barefoot, and the only time you, uh, the only time he actually put the boots on is when they had to film his feet. Ah, funny. All right, next up. Well, from one Frankenstein to one Dracula, night, uh, May 27th, 1922, Sir Christopher Lee. The sexiest uh, voice in Hollywood. Who made a surprisingly large amount of films as Dracula and drifted away from the role for a while and came back when he was promised a film that was like super accurate to the book, which wasn't, ha- has done everything from like 70s style, 70s like sort of disco style, kung fu based vampire movies all the way through weird science fiction and, and, and other stuff, uh, including popular stuff. Like he was in the Lord of the Rings and he was, he was Count he was Dooku. in, um, he was, Count- he was Count Dooku in the, in the, in the prequel trilogy and has been, uh, was an active, like heavy metal fan for years and years too. And he also played Willy Wonka's uh, father in the, uh, Charlie and chocolate factory re- remake reboot, whatever. Yes, yep. that's right. Was a I've, I've mentally forgotten that that movie yeah. existed. Thanks for that, Bill. And Appreciate that. Yeah. He was also the, the monster in that curse of Frankenstein movie that I watched a couple of weeks ago with some yep. of the most pedestrian special effects makeup I've ever encountered in my life. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> we need gauze for what? Just get as much gauze <laughs> as you can. And that's what they made. There, there he was. Make his face kind of green and cover him with gauze. It, that was the one thing I, I sort of liked about Hammer's films, though, is that is that they didn't ape Jack Pierce's makeup in any way, shape, or form. Right. It's ju- it's all their own thing and as weird and and cheap and crappy as it can be, and uh, and still fantastically presented. All right, next up on the twenty eighth, May the twenty eighth, nineteen forty nine, lead singer of punk rock, guess band, shock, shock, shock yeah, rock. whatever, yeah. Kind the the band was called the Plasmatics. Her name was Wendy O. Williams. The Plasmatics was a band that I heard about they talked about them all the time during the early 80s they were like i guess they you could call them a heavy metal band honestly up until about two hours ago i never heard them i never i had to look them up to listen to them i knew all about them though because they were notorious uh they were more of like an art project i guess the founder of the band was from yale university they used to do a lot of stuff like you know, explode television sets on stage and chainsaw right. stuff. They were, they were definitely a visual band. Right. Uh, they opened up a lot of doors for you know bands like Guar. You know, were probably inspired by the Plasmatics. I know Gene Simmons was a big fan of Wendy O. Williams. He actually wrote a song for her called "It's My Life." I remember seeing Wendy O. Williams on. <laughs> Do you remember Night Flight? Yeah. All right, Night Flight used to be this late-night TV show on the USA Network cable station, which was like a a demented MTV, all condensed into Friday and Saturday nights from like 11 o'clock until 4 in the morning. And they always had, they they had like four or five clips of Wendy Williams. I don't remember if there was any music in the clips, but she was like, had a chainsaw on the back of a truck and was like, blah! And I remember this monster giant mohawk that she had, and she did these amazingly, like, detailed and strange interviews on Night Flight, and that's how I know Wendy O'William. You know, the Plasmatics' performances, maybe the reason why they didn't get played on the radio, why you never really got to hear them is, one, they weren't really that good. They She sang, like, Udo Dirkschneider. You can't tell the two apart listening to them. 
Two, I've been dying to make this joke all day long. Uh, <laughs> Wendy O. Williams got arrested several times uh, for indecent exposure because, uh, well, basically, Wendy O. Williams is a, the person responsible for why you know exactly what I'm talking about when I say the ping pong ball trick. <laughs> oh, and if the audience could see me, I've, I've pulled my fingers up over my mouth and I've gone, ooh. <laughs> yes, I know exactly what that is. How cool, <laughs> yeah. Uh, the ping pong ball trick. <laughs> That's yeah. <laughs> oh, that was yes. that was Wendy O. Williams. Uh, God, God love you, Wendy O. Williams. Wendy uh, O. Williams. I, I, I hope you're riding that bus through stuff in that big uh, junkyard in the sky. All right. So, and we're jumping from Wendy O. Williams uh, to May 29th, seventeen eighty one. Oh, young. Where. Yes, where John Walker uh, realizes that people are going to burn their houses down if they try and start fires with chemical ma- fire starters. He invents the first friction match with a sulfur head and makes them out of cardboard so they're super duper cheap. So matchbook matches kind of. Matchbook matches, yes. Yeah, okay. So he, and, he and invented, sort of redefine the industry. Yeah. So John Walker, born on the 29th, 1781, invented the strike match. The strike match, exactly. Cool. And uh, yeah, and it, it doesn't seem like the sort of thing that changes a culture, but it did because it made matches portable. They were way less dangerous than than phosphorus matches, which killed a lot of the people that made them. I don't know if you know the stories of like the match girls who would end up eating phosphorus because they were working at the same place they were eating and it would burn through their faces and yeah, yeah terrible stuff. And his were a lot safer. They had their own problems, like the sulfur head sometimes would burn so hot they'd fall off and burn the carpet or you burn your clothes or whatever, but... They got refined as time went on, but right. he was the guy that invented them. And uh, he also did not patent it because he right. thought it was such a, a silly invention that it wasn't going to make any money anyway. Well, joke, right. joke's on you, sir. Patent everything. Yeah. I'd patent my own farts if I could. <laughs> my God, if, if Gene Simmons ever heard about John Walker, he'd probably just have a brain aneurysm on the spot. I would be like, <laughs> oh, he'd, he'd patent kiss matches, and that would be the only kind of match you could get, like... All right, and wrapping up the birthdays, May the 30th, the man of a thousand voices, born in 1908, Mr. Mel Blanc. Famously did the voice Bugs Bunny. for, yep, for Daffy Bugs, Duck. Yeah, uh, basically every Looney Tune cartoon. Every Looney Tunes it, character, yeah. But including he also, all the, including all like the well, Hollywood ones, right? He did like the James Cagney style yeah, ones. Yeah, and, uh, and, uh, He also did the voice for Barney Rubble for the first season of... Uh, of the Flintstones. If you ever go back and watch the original season there when Barney Rubble had... And Barney right. Rubble sounds totally different. Yeah, that's because it was right. Mel Blanc. Yep. He also did Tweaky on Buck Rogers in the 25th century. That's right. And uh, do you remember the movie Strange Brew with Bob and Doug McKenzie? Yes, I do. He did the voice for their parents. Their parents, yeah. They're, they're both mother and father. Yep. Get me more Elsinore beer. Yeah, I remember him. Uh, yeah. Funny too. Morons. Yep. A uh, funny bit about Mel Blanc was he was either allergic to or he didn't like one or the other carrots. So whenever he did the uh, the voice for Bugs Bunny, he would chew on carrots and then like spit them out in a bucket. Huh. Yeah. Really? Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yep. So, yep, he did all the voices for Looney Tunes and tunes is another word for music. And music brings us to... The worst song ever. <sighs> this this is one of those that uh, we've been talking about 
back and forth uh, between ourselves for the past couple of months, actually. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll bring this one up. So at the beginning of the year, we were talking about We Are the World, which is a, and that way we featured that song. It's a terrible song. So the year of 1985, there was probably no less than a good dozen charity singles, all inspired by uh, Band-Aid and uh, Do They Know It's Christmas. Uh, you know, there was We're Stars, the heavy metal version, and right. there was a bunch of charity concerts, and there's a real funny one with like a bunch of like Norwegian rock stars that's... <laughs> 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 if you can find that one, that one, it was maybe they're Swedish because I think Joey Tempest from uh, Joey Tempest from Europe is in there somewhere. Uh, there, there was a never-ending just charity singles. One of the worst is a poorly laid-out idea. It started out as a great idea, and then the logic of it just it fell apart. But they went through with it anyway. We're talking about this right. uh, charity event called Hands Across America. Hands Across America. Now the idea yep. was to create a human chain from coast to coast and raise money so they were sort of selling spots within the chain so yep. that you could stand in and the money would all go to homelessness charities across America and again this is the time where the charity single is a big part of the popular culture so there's also a song that goes along with this hands across America initiative the actual event oh that took place in 1996. there sure is and they would they play the video you know quite a bit on MTV yeah and it's like eight minutes long. Uh, we're not gonna, yeah. you know, we're not gonna suffer through eight minutes of it. But here's thirty seconds. So yeah, that was the thing. And um, <laughs> there are the, the way this country is set up. I don't, I've driven cross country a number of times. Right. Once you get like out of, I don't want to say New England, but once you get west of the Mississippi, there's a lot of open space. Right. Now, if you're going to create a human chain out in the middle of like Arizona, you're going to run into a lot of problems. One, you're going to have to bust people out there, and two. You can go 50 miles without there being an exit, a gas station, and, you know, nothing but vultures to come and eat you when you die from heat stroke, you know? So the logic of doing this is just gone. It's not there. Well, it, yes, and it, it, there's a figurative component to it, too. It's it, While it was often described as hands, people holding an unbroken human chain from coast to coast. And the practical way that they were able to do it was they covered that many miles. So they've had chains that like looped around city blocks and doubled back on itself. And then they, they measured out the number of miles that that chain created. And then that effectively crossed coast to coast of the United States. It was like um, 4,000 miles. Right. Of people. It, it wasn't a, yeah, it wasn't a very straight line to the east of the Mississippi river. It was pretty up and down. It looked like a cardiograph. But I think what happened was uh, this guy came up with this idea and was all balls to the wall, you know, with it. And then 
and right. by the time we get the t-shirts printed up, somebody said, yeah, this isn't going to work. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it definitely has an air of that. Like people were so interested in doing this that they had to like really quickly realize that like there are some really significant logistical problems with making this happen and we better fix right. it. Well, we're doing it anyway. Uh, we already got the t-shirts made up. Anyway. Yeah. Yes. The, the funny thing is like the song. That the official music video and song that goes along with it is the Voices of America, which is a chorus of, I don't know, five million people. It sounds like it's just a jig, big mush of voices right. singing this very mediocre, ballady, sort of up with people type caca song. I don't know how else to describe it. Partly written written by Quincy Jones and Michael Jackson, and it still sucks. Yeah. And there's like um, there's like little like sound bites of like. Children going, won't you please lend a hand? You know, to, right. to pull at your heartstrings. But meanwhile, you're like, right. this is eight minutes long. <laughs> yeah, okay, well, my God, we got to sit through this whole thing before we get to the Billy Idol video that I'm waiting, waiting <laughs> for for the last two hours. Yeah. All right. So that's going to be uh, a wrap of the show, except my award-winning and always very popular trivia question. The trivia question was... Who is the oldest person to ever join the cast of Saturday Night Live? Yes. At the time of... They started on Saturday Night Live. Who was the oldest person to join the Saturday Night Live? All right, I, I'm gonna I'm going back over my exhaustive memory of all the people who've ever been on Saturday Night Live. Yep. So this lot. is gonna take a minute. Okay, I have an answer. Okay. Uh, I think it is, and this is just going on how old he is now. But I'm gonna say Billy Crystal. Ooh, that's uh that's a pretty good guess. Uh, no, Daryl Hammond was the oldest person. To be on the cast because he was on it for so long, uh, he was fifty-three. But our friend and answer to our question, Leslie Jones, oh. is barreling headlong towards that record because she is currently fifty-two years old. She started on the show when she was forty-seven. Wow. Yep. So Leslie Jones, she's so funny. Oh my she god, she is funny. Yeah, best part of the remake of Ghostbusters for sure. Did you see the Coming to America sequel? I have not seen the Coming to America sequel. She's fantastic in it. She's so f- she's. She- I, I've I've heard she walks away with the movie. Yeah, yeah. She I was just haven't. Absolutely, my favorite part. She's so funny. I haven't been watching much on TV, so but it's in my it's in my queue still. From I don't know when it came out. It came out like what in? It's uh, like March or April. Or yeah, like three two three months ago, right? Yeah. Okay. If you're if you're a Leslie Jones fan, and I definitely am, whenever I saw her pop up in the movie, I was like, yes! All right, but that is going to wrap up the show for this week. Have a great week, everyone. All right. Uh, we will see you right back here. Same bad time, same bad channel. Say goodnight, Jeff. All right. Dot, dot, dash, dash, dot, dash, 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 dot, dot, dash, dot, 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 dash, dash, dot, dash, dash, dash. That's goodnight, Jeff, in Morse code. Is it? Yeah. Good night, everybody. You took the time, huh? Awesome. All right. Bye, guys. Bye, everybody. Special thanks to James Cosser for our theme music. Thank you so much for listening to Twibbly. This week was way better last year. You can follow and or message us over on Instagram or on Facebook at T-W-W-W-B-L-Y. Please subscribe if you haven't already. Make sure you tell your friends if you like our show. And if you don't like our show, tell your friends you did like it. It'll be a great prank you can play on them. Have a good week, guys.